Williams here. As you know, I'm passionate about the business of aesthetic medicine, as well as mentoring those who are serious about getting to the next level in business uh, and in life, because uh, the life part is probably more important. Uh, in my podcast series, I share a lot of the lessons I've learned as an entrepreneur, small business owner, but I, and I've also written a book called The White Coat Entrepreneur, where I tell, um, it's basically a tell-all, essentially relevant, I think, to pretty much any professional small business person, not just surgeons who are attempting to get to the next level. I also have a website, Dr. Ed Williams, uh, edwinwilliams.com, and I got a bunch of uh, all the podcasts there and some other information. Today's topic, I'm uh, honored, thrilled to interview uh, Dr. Steve Daines, um, and his topic is going to be kind of, I'm going to ask him a lot of questions, it'll be interactive, but it's really the trials and tribulations and hard lessons learned in starting a facial plastic surgery practice in a highly competitive market. And... Um, I'll start out by just, uh, before I introduce Steve here, I just want to tell you why I chose uh, to ask him and bring him to this audience. Well, first of all, you know, over the years I've had, um, I've had fellows uh, who five or six or seven years later say, you know, you never told me how hard this was. And I, and I, I say to him, uh, yeah, I did. You just weren't listening. Well, Steve's one of the guys who was listening. But the reason I really chose Steve is that um, he left, he went out on his own, he started to practice. You know, we hear a lot of excuses why I can't, you know, and uh, I always say excuses are tools for the week. But Steve uh, had, you had three children and now he's got five, right, Steve? Correct, yeah. Five so, so, you know, the, the whole thing of, oh, I have a wife and I, I have, you know, so Steve went out on his own. Um, he's in a very competitive market and um, – He's crushing it. And so I think the other thing is T Steve has a very balanced life. I have a lot of my you know, friends and colleagues. We all know who they are, right? Uh, they've got successful practices and their, their, uh, you know, their personal life is a wreck. And as I've learned from actually a lot of my um, LDS friends that um, no success at work uh, justifies failure at home. Is that something you guys say, Steve? Yeah, I, I've heard that over and over. Yeah, that that quote comes from a, a former president of the of the LDS Mormon Church, whose name was David O. McKay, and it's, it's something I think about a lot as far as what my priorities are, and I think family life and having well-adjusted children and a great relationship with my wife is has to be my number one priority, even though I'm uh, obviously wanting to be successful in my practice. But that's why I wanted to ask you because I, by by all accounts, uh, you know, you're you're crushing it. Um, so, uh, I, you know, one of the, you know, now that I've introduced you, you know, tell us, you know, tell us where, you know, because I know where you are and I know a lot about you. But tell those who don't know, you know, who you are. You know, I, Steve was my fellow. Was it 2012, 13, Steve? Uh, 2011, 2012. 11, okay, 11, 12. So you've been out eight years now survived um covid uh yeah. and um <clears throat> which we well, you know how did you how did you get started and you know how did you deal with it personally and how did you do with it um professionally i mean how did you just tell tell us your tell everyone who's listening your story how'd you do it and how'd you deal with the the stress of you know not knowing where revenue was coming and that sort of thing sure so um 
I grew up in Southern California, uh, went to medical school at UC Irvine and wanted to come back to Orange County. Cause it's on, cause you, you, there's a desperate need of plastic surgeons there, right? Yeah, there's a real lack and I uh, <laughs> felt like I could fill that void. Um, and so my goal was to, to set up shop in Newport Beach and I, I always felt that, that the key is just to have that will, that desire, and that good things would come if you put in the work. And I've seen that happen before in my life and the life of people who I respect, people like you. Um, so when I came out of fellowship, I I had a little bit of a soft landing. Um, instead of just, you know, leasing a space and opening my own practice, I kind of moved in uh, to another practice that provided me some uh, staffing and supplies and um so you're making that sound easy but you worked that was something that that was a result of phone calls and hard work and and, and a lot of thought so you know you didn't just land on your feet and land in you know um so you worked at that right yeah absolutely i kept in touch with with several doctors i had trained with and one of them was a otolaryngologist in newport beach and um and so i i joined an office with another facial plastic surgeon um, an otolaryngologist, and then subsequently several dermatologists have, have moved in as well. Um, but we all have our own uh, individual practice and then share some common resources. So when I, when I first started, I actually had to live with my parents about an hour away from where I was practicing. I remember and, that. Uh, Every morning I'd get up, you know, around five and, and drive down. And there were plenty of days I'd have maybe one patient on my schedule or days that that one patient would call and cancel and I'd be stuck with uh, no patients for the day. Um, but I took it as a real challenge and uh, made an effort to get known in the community. Um, you know, the basic things like knocking on doors of other doctors, going to Chamber of Commerce events. Um, things that, you know, some people might think are below them. Um, I realized aren't below you when you, you have mouths to feed at home. Yeah. So, um, I made an effort to, you know, just get to know people and within several months was able to have enough patient volume and revenue to move out of my parents' home and, uh, things have really taken off from there. Yeah. So you also, um, had another situation. Remember, I, 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 is they still going? Where you did some skin cancer work, or you, you, you know, and let's face yeah. it, all this stuff is painful. Knocking on doors, right? You, you yeah. talked about being beneath you, but it, it kind of feels like I went through all this training, and and now you're going to ask me to go around and meet people, and and right? Yeah, yeah. You know, nothing, nothing is below you if you're if you're doing things that you've been trained to do, and you're doing them well. So, I've had a couple opportunities over the last eight years for some part time work nearby. Um, there was a medical clinic about 40 minutes away from my primary practice and um, I'd go there half a day a week and, and do skin cancer reconstruction and some functional noses. Um, and after doing that for five or six years, I was actually able to pass that, that position off to a, another one of your fellows who um, was a few years after me. And from what I know, he's still doing that. So, um, and, and now I currently also team up with a local dermatology practice and do uh, uh, quite a big number of nose reconstructions for them. So, you know, you got to have your hands in a lot of pots if you want to, if you want to be successful. Yeah. Or you, you know, as I say, you got to, it's a numbers game. You've got to throw a bunch of crap at the wall and a lot of it doesn't stick. And now and then you find something that sticks and you got to, 
You just got to yeah. keep working. I mean, you, there is no right answer. And I think so many people get paralyzed by the fear of what if I fail? I mean, here you are, you got a wife and kids, you're living with your pam, you know, you're living with your family. How long did it take before? And, you know, so that means, you, you know, your wife has been putting up for, you know, with this whole life for yeah. a few years now, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, Dr. Rhodes asked me, he, one of the questions he, he wanted to know, so your current situation, Steve, go ahead and explain like, like what's your average work week like and what's your, your average uh, practice office setup like, that sort of thing? Yeah, so I'm in the same office that I started in. Um, I, you know, I work five days a week and then some Saturdays I go in to see post-op patients. Um, we have an on-site ambulatory surgery center, so I, I, some weeks I'm doing surgery pretty much every day of the week. Um, I also have a local dermatology practice where I go two half days a week and do their most reconstructions for them. Um, and my practice is pretty evenly split between functional, um, skin cancer and, and functional rhinoplasty mm-hmm. and then cosmetic surgery, you know, rhinoplasty and aging face. Um, I do all of my own injectables still. It's something I enjoy, and um, I have a, quite a loyal following of, of patients who come in regularly for injectables. So I do all the non-surgical as well as the surgical treatments in my practice. So in your in your are you in? Uh, I remember at one point there was an orthodontist you were looking. You were going to do work out of his office a little bit. Did that ever work out? No, so that was one of the things I was floating out there when I was first uh, looking for a place to practice. You know, when you do fellowship in New York, but your goal is to practice in Southern California, it's a little hard to get things set up. So I, I there was an oral surgeon who I was contemplating um, sharing office space with, and um, ultimately I didn't do that. Instead, I decided to work with this other facial plastic surgeon and otolaryngologist instead. All right. So the space that you're in now, are you still sh- are you sharing it with that the otolaryngologist that you were sharing it with? Yeah, yeah. So the the, the principal doctor who kind of started the the office is a facial plastic surgeon. Most of what he does is skin cancer related, and then there's a couple dermatologists in our office, and as well as an oculoplastic surgeon. Got it. Um, so we all kind of work under the same umbrella, but then we, we have our individual practice identities as well. Got it. So you have your own staff? Yeah, I have, I have dedicated staff, but, um, but, but some of it is shared. Um, so it's a little, it's a little complicated, but, you know, I work with it the works. same people every day and it, and it works for me. Yeah. 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 And it works. So, um, what was, when you first say that first year, maybe two years, what was your, what was your, what would you say was your biggest challenge, biggest struggle, biggest thing that kept you up at night? You know, not, you'd think that you'd be stressed out and worried and, and, uh, you know, losing sleep over it. And I'll be honest, I, I, I was confident that things would work out. I just, I saw the growth and I, I could see, things happening um, positively for me. So I think the main thing was just getting that critical mass, that volume of, of patients and referrals. And it's like the snowball, you know, it starts small and it just has to slowly roll and grow. And so it just, 
required several months of slow growth before I could really see how the numbers would work for me to be able to make a good living. Yeah. So Dr. Rhodes, my current fellow, um, said to me today, I asked him for some questions to ask you. And he said, when, you know, when you're going out, because he's going to, he wants to go out either on his own or he's got one person he's talking to and where he's going. But what, um, what would, if you were to hire, who would be your first essential employee and how would you negotiate a salary with them? Uh, tough question. Um, you know, I think if d- depending on what your resources are um, and the type of market you're going to be in, you may make a, a different decision. But I think you need someone who's going to be able to do multiple things for your practice. Um, someone who can answer some phones, help you with some strategic decision making, and, um, and then even someone who can help help with patient care. Um, so I, I think early on, especially in a place like Newport Beach, you can't have a, you know, a five person staff. Um, you wouldn't be able to afford that. Um, and so really you get one or two people who can multitask and help you with, with multiple things. And as far as negotiating a salary, I think you just have to, to ask what the kind of expected, um, compensation in your market is and then try and be in that ballpark with them. Yeah. You know, there's a, one thing I learned. For multiple different sources, it's the who first, then what, meaning what, meaning their degree is not as important as who they are as a person, you know, their attitude, their drive, their fire, um, because you can find someone who's not terribly uh, uh, formally educated who can do a lot better um, than having someone who's a, you know, medical assistant. That's what we always hear. We need a medical assistant. But really what you want is someone who's, who's got some grit. And is part of your is part of your culture, right? Yeah, and you know our our profession is all about taking care of people. Um, you need someone who's really passionate about taking care of your patients and um, who who works hard to make your job easier. Do things so that you can focus on on being a surgeon. Yeah. Um, so you're right. It doesn't matter really what their degree or background is. First and foremost, you need to find that rock star employee. Yeah, and be very selective and go slowly. I think that's a challenge we have as surgeons, right? We have a problem, we want to fix it. So we tend to be eternal. We tend to be optimistic, right? Or we wouldn't go into surgery if we thought everything was going to go bad. So we yeah. tend to be, you know, and then we hire people and they end up not being what we thought they were, and that's a problem. So being very selective, if I were giving advice, very, very selective on, on who we bring on board because they're a lot harder to get rid of. Um, you know, in the beginning, Dr. Rose was asking me, you know, uh, you know, when you went out, did you did you borrow money? Did you, ha- you know, because I know a lot of people finishing now. And let's face it, you had, you know, you had a lot of mouths to feed. Um, yeah. And you were, you know, you were leaning on the family a little bit, but you still, you know, you still have a tremendous amount of responsibility uh, because you're, you, you know, your family was getting your older children were getting older. And with them, they get, as you know, they all get more expensive. So you were dealing with that. Did you? Did you borrow money? Did you, uh, did you, how did you, how did you do all that? Yeah. So I, you know, I was able to cut costs. Um, that's the, the one thing we can always control the most. So you can't really control your revenues, but you can control your costs. Um, the practice setting I was in, I didn't have a fixed overhead. So I was paying on a percentage of my collections, which I think was really helpful early on. That's a great, it's um, a great way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, you know, I did, I did stupid things like I, I, I cashed out my Roth IRA and lived off of that. I, I sold a car and, 
uh, and, and lease the car instead. So I had a little extra cash from selling that car. Um, Risky so I made stuff. some, some right. short-term decisions that, that, you know, maybe weren't the smartest, but they helped propel me forward. And then obviously I've been able to, to do, to do much better since then. You know, what, what I've noticed, not among just myself, but, uh, among those of us who quote make it, um, when you commit to things like you here, you're cashing out your Roth IRA and you're selling a car, you're going all in. Um, you know, you kind of make it work. And I think when, when you're looking at certain, certain technologies or whatever, and you decide, oh, should I rent it? Whatever. If you really believe it has merit, if you go all in, you're more likely to, to make it successful. I remember when I was, I was in practice three years and I bought a CO2 laser and gosh, I didn't lose sleep. I lost sleep for quite some time, but I knew it had merit. I knew that I was going, you know, and, but, but if I rented it, I would not have been as committed. And, you know, you're obviously very committed, but I do notice that people who are successful at this, um, go all in. Yeah. Cause they believe yeah, in think, themselves. Yeah. You have to be all in. This isn't, you know, we're in a very competitive specialty. We compete not only with other facial plastic surgeons, but, you know, dermatologists, uh, full body plastic surgeons and other, you know, quote, aesthetic providers. Um, so you have to be all in. And I, I made a decision not to do any general otolaryngology for that reason. I just really wanted to focus in on, on facial plastic surgery. And, um, it, you know, it may have been something that obviously would have been nice to have a little extra income from doing tonsillectomies and sinus surgery. But um, over the long haul, I think being all in on facial plastic surgeries enabled me to build a successful practice. Yeah, I I would agree with you there. What kind of marketing strategies did you use for, to first get patients in the door? You know, which were the most effective, which were costly, wastes of time, that type of thing? Because we all learn lessons from this stuff, right? We do. You know, marketing is an ongoing uh, study and how to spend and how to waste your money. Um, I've found that at the end of the day, the most successful marketing is internally with my existing patients. And so I put a lot of effort into how I treat my patients, how I get them to come back for other procedures, um, you know, marketing to them via regular emails and things and getting them to refer friends. You know, like everybody else, I, I do spend some money on SEO and on my website. I, I don't find that that's as, as um, you know, profitable as I'd like it to be. Um, I also spend time on Instagram and social media. I've gone through periods where I've been more active than others. Yeah, so, I think we all get sick of it too, don't we? Sometimes, yeah, I'm sick of it. sometimes I'm just like, I don't want to put it out there. I'm like, I don't want to. I don't want to be. I don't want my. Yeah, it's it's I I go through I go through periods Steve, where I just I don't do it for two or three months on my yeah. personal stuff because I just I find it almost distasteful and I I feel dirty. But yeah, I, I think you would agree though. You you have to right. People want to know who you are. Yeah, you have to have a presence or else you won't seem like you're legitimate. Um, Which is it's crazy. It's crazy. You know, it's not my personality to be like, hey, look at me. Um, look at me dancing in the hallway of my office. I, I'm with you. And that's yeah. not to, I'm not disparaging people who do that, but it's not, it's not me. I wish I was, um, you know, I wish I was, <laughs> I could do the dance, you know. <laughs> I, I agree. But so. you know, 
I have people come and they'll come from three hours away and they'll say, oh, you know, my sister, you did her. And she's like, you have this beautiful family and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Ugh, uh, I got to keep going with it. You know, because people, people want, I think the positive that comes out of it is that people want to know you're human. They want to know you're humble. They want to know you're a good doctor. And so, you know, but I, I, I got to tell you one of the things that kind of makes me crazy is, you know, I say we, you know, as old timers used to get on the podium, do all that stuff and all the humanitarian stuff because it was the right thing to do. And, you know, now we see, you know, some, some of the uh, younger folks see, that all of a sudden they're like Insta stars, you know, and, and like, oh, world renowned Beverly Hills. And they've been in practice two years. I'm like, really? But it's, it, you, 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 you have to do some social media. You have to. Do you agree? I agree. You have to do it. You have to do it in a way that you, um, is consistent with your personality. So yes. no, no, nobody should try and fake it. If they, if they don't think they're a world famous Beverly Hills plastic surgeon, you shouldn't pretend to be one. Yeah. Um, but I, it, it does have to be, you have to produce relevant content on a semi-regular basis. And um, I do think it, it adds value and patients can get a sense of who you are. They want to know who you are before they're going to come in and see you. And I think, I think that's the only way you have to reach out to them and show them that. Yeah. One thing I learned was, um, you know, I find it to taste distasteful when you just see these before and afters. And we all know some of our well-respected colleagues just keep throwing before and afters up there. But the reality is if you're going to do it, you know, Talk about the story of the patient. I think that it's so much more effective that people can relate to it than just throwing out before and afters. And I don't know, you may disagree with me, but I've had the experts weigh in and they say the same thing. No one wants to just see your before and afters thrown out there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there needs to be context and um, explanation. I think people want to be educated. Their attention span, usually, if you can have a few sentences explaining the why and the how, I think people really like that kind of content. Yeah. Which I think it's all, better than all takes time, you know, and unfortunately, yeah. some a lot of it's your time because it's not like you can just farm that out. We learned that lesson. We tried to farm out on social media for about a year. It was a disaster. We spent a toward, uh, spent a ton of money, and I don't know. It just it was it was a disaster. Um, you know, like you said though, you, you know, you end up wasting a lot too, just trying to figure it out. A little yep. better, you know, but the biggest thing, I think the biggest lesson there is, you know, don't fake something that you're not and be yourself and just, you know, try to have fun with it. But I got to, I do admit that I, at times I get disgusted with it. Um, so let me ask you, if you were going to go out, you know, you're a young facial plastic surgeon and, and, and you're going to, you know, it's daunting looking at all the equipment out there. You walk through the exhibit halls. What, you know, if you were going to pick something that you think is like an absolute must have, in you know technology, software, uh, photography, electric electronical records. I mean, what what would you tell the young person? So I, you know, for me, I, I, the only device that I have purchased um, is a fractional CO two laser. So when I was first in practice, I would actually rent this this laser from a local company every time I had a case. So I used it for three or four years and. You know, saw what it did. I was very comfortable with the kind of results that I could get with it, the kind of patients that were interested. Um, and after three or four years, I decided to bite the bullet and purchase the Fine. device. It's been a really, um, you know, not only financially, but also just in terms of patient satisfaction. For me, it's been a really great purchase. 
I don't really have an interest in buying a lot of other equipment. I just think it, you start to feel like you, uh, you've got this albatross hanging over you where you have to use this and recommend it. Um, I I'm think with it you. makes it, it, makes it hard to practice. Yeah. You've got this, this expensive device sitting in the room next door to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you there. I, I think that there's so many people go down that road and they feel, you know, what, what we don't realize is a lot of the people who, and I, I'm not going to pick on the derms here, but, you know, some of the big, big derm practices have, you know, eight, 10, 15, 17 pieces of equipment with the people. What people don't realize is because they're getting on the podium, the companies float those machines to them. And then, you know, people, you get this kind of like, oh my God, I, I should have at least something more than what I got which is not what you, the, the right. And then you, you become, you know, you kind of become a, a slave to it to some degree. Um, right. You got to just start slow and figure out what your patients want, what, what's actually going to work for them. And, you know, if you have the, the means uh, and, and the interest and you can slowly add, but otherwise just having a core of a few things that work for you, I think makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yep. What was your, your biggest challenge in the beginning? And biggest, biggest thing that you had, you know, had to overcome, do you think? So I'm not sure people talk about this a lot, but I, I, you know, I know a lot of facial plastic surgeons who feel this way. And, you know, in our training, we obviously, we do a lot of big head and neck surgeries and we assist on a lot of surgeries. But when you're out doing facelifts and and rhinoplasty on, on paying customers for the first time, um, I think there's definitely a transition period where you're trying to get comfortable with those operations and managing the patient's expectations and then dealing with them afterwards. Um, so I, I think that those first few years are really important as far as just getting comfortable being a, being a facial plastic surgeon and performing the types of operations that we do and doing, doing it and getting consistent results. Yeah. So I can definitely say that was something that was stressful and, would keep me up at night, you know, planning and thinking about the operations. Um, I don't think you're I, alone I, there, Steve. I, you know, I think we all go through that. I wouldn't want to go through it again. You know, I, yeah. uh, you know, I know what I can do, what I can't do and that sort of thing. Um, and that comes with experience. But even though you have great training, I found it interesting too, because I had a number of my, you know, otolaryngology colleagues say to me, oh, you know, you guys do all this foo-foo stuff. It's not a, really all that hard a surgery. Yeah, it, I mean, trying to get consistent eyelid results and facelift results and, and rhinoplasty results and dealing with people who have high expectations is very stressful. I, um, it was for me. Absolutely. Yeah. I, it's stressful. And, you know, I, if, if you care about your, your craft and if you care about your patients, you know, I, I can't see a time in my career where it's not going to keep me up some mm-hmm. nights and not going to give me butterflies when I'm driving into surgery that morning. I, I think I think that's a I don't know if it's healthy, but I think that's an appropriate way yeah. to feel for the kinds of surgeries we do. Do you, so? Let me ask you something. Do you still get butterflies? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I played basketball in high school, um, and at the time, I thought I was pretty good. And I, I, I knew I would be one of the better players on the court. And I, I got butterflies before those games. And yeah. um, I still do sometimes. Yeah. You know, I just had 10 days off. I haven't had in a while. but um, And I knew I was coming back to a day. I had two days in a row. And, well, one day was my, my Monday. And I had a facelift and a nose. And the second day, I had two facelifts and a nose. And, and Monday morning, I was driving in. And I, I mean, the night before, I didn't sleep well. And I'm like, you know, it's it's still 
there's, you know, whereas when you're doing, you know, when you're doing some of the functional or head and neck surgery, you just go in there and you do your work. And, but it, but it's definitely stressful what we do. It's very stressful. It's, you know, patients have high expectations, rightfully so. You're often being paid good sums of money to, to perform the surgeries and they're inherently, you know, high, high complexity surgeries where a lot of, a lot of moving parts are involved. So I think that's very natural. Yeah, what were what if you were to say like in the first five years, been out eight years now? What was probably one of the biggest lessons that you learned? Oh, great, great question. You know, you learn a lot of lessons along the way. Um, I think one important thing I learned is that you you can't focus too much on on your day to day patient volumes. You know. I remember you talking about early on, you, you heard the phone every time it rang and it oh, yeah. you, you know, stressed you out wondering, are these people calling? Are they booking? And you'll, you'll have months where you just feel like you're killing it. You know, you're, you're too busy. You'd rather be working a little less, you know, there's high demand and then you may have a month or two where things go real quiet. And I don't think I understood that those are the natural ebb and flows of, of having a practice. You know, you never, so get, I, you never get used to that, Steve. Yeah. You know, you get fixated on it and you think, oh, no, is something happening out there? Are people, are people not going to have rhinoplasties anymore? Um, and then I, I gradually started to just appreciate having a little downtime when things got a little slow because mm-hmm. I knew things would pick up and I wouldn't have that same downtime. Yeah, no, I uh, I agree. And I, like, even though you don't get used to it, I mean, I've gotten – I'll tell you one of the things and, you know, really once – once, uh, and you know, Paul East, cause he was here, you know, but when he signed, um, you know, signed on the dotted line as a partner, um, to me, that took a lot of pressure off because I just realized it wasn't just me because up until then it was, and you know, you get a slow month, it was scary, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to, to be able to spread the risk around. Yeah. Um, what was probably the single best thing you did for, you know, your marketing back then, do you think? I would say it goes back to going out and shaking hands with other doctors. Yeah, same um, here. It, I literally knocked on doors and brought cupcakes to, to doctor's offices. It's something I did when I was a fellow um, at your practice. I remember <laughs> going out. <laughs> With, with, with it works, right? It works. I mean, the same doctors who referred to me eight years ago are still some of my best sources of referrals. Yeah. And, uh, and also good friends who, you know, confidants who I can talk to about, about patient issues. So I think nothing is better than just the old fashioned, you know, meet and greet and, uh, telling people who you are and, and that you're willing to help them with their patients. And it, I think it, it's, it's something that I, I'm so grateful I did. Yeah. I used to say, if you remember, you go out and you meet, you know, 10 dermatologists and maybe one or two of them takes a shot on you, you know, and then, then all of a sudden they send you one patient, but it's true. We used to go out every year at, you know, during the holidays and, uh, in the beginning, back in the early days, I used to bring them Christmas wreaths, you know, or, you know, wreaths. But then I, I had this little Jeep and it was so full, I couldn't fit them in there. So then I'd start doing other things. But sure enough, a couple of weeks later, a few referrals had come in. So, yeah. you know, um, so what, tell me what, what would be, you know, I know you're, 
you know, you still do one of the things I always tell people and probably for, for the first time since, uh, you know, Slaughter joined us, he's a couple fellows ago. Um, I stopped doing all the soft tissue work and, and insurance stuff, but I did for probably 20 some years. Always had, because I thought it was good for the fellowship and ever, but my advice always to young people is don't ever, you know, uh, dismiss the insurance and soft tissue work because one, it's nice to give, feel like a doctor, know you're contributing to your community, but also you never know when you're going to have a couple of dry months in a recession, you know, two part question. One, are you, you know, do you think you'll give up your insurance stuff someday? And two, what would be like, if you were to craft your dream practice right now, what would it, what would it be? So answering your first question, you know, I really don't see a time anytime soon that I would give up on the insurance stuff. I, I, I may modify the types of cases that I'm wanting to do. Um, you know, early on we do all kinds of lumps and bumps and moles and scar revisions and things. And, um, that's, that's something that you gradually want to get away from. Uh, but I, I actually really enjoy doing skin cancer reconstruction and even functional rhinoplasty. Um, you know, when COVID hit and and our offices were pretty much shut down for a couple months, I still had quite a big accounts receivable um, that continued to, to pay me and uh, give me income during that time when I wasn't working. And Slaughter had the same thing here. You know, I mean, I was closed down for two months and he and I kept telling him, I said to him and he came to me, he said, he goes, you know what? You're right. He goes, I'm glad I'm doing this stuff. He's got four yeah. kids at home, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's important. And then, you know, you touched on this, but I, I, I can't even count the number of patients I've had where, you know, maybe I fixed a fracture or did a skin cancer reconstruction and eventually they had a facelift or a rhinoplasty. Yep. I mean, if, if you're a good doctor and you take good care of people, they're going to trust you for other things they want to have done. Um, so at least for me, I just don't see myself giving it up. I just see myself kind of narrowing down the kinds of cases I want to take on. Yeah, I think it's a great strategy. Do you I think yeah. you were the you were a fellow when we did a pretty significant very significant uh, uh left right face lower lid hemangioma yeah. little, and a little girl. You remember her name? Yeah. Her name was Libby, yeah. Libby I I can't say it cuz I don't know hippo stuff yeah. but but anyway, do you know last year I did a facelift on her grandmother? Yeah. And she was from That's 2 hours friend. away. So you know, there you go. And that'll, yeah. you know, that'll help my, uh, you know, my successors here moving forward because we've really worked hard on, on good relationships. And, and you know what? You feel, you feel like a better doctor than just chasing the cosmetic stuff. If you remember, I used to say, don't try to chase it, you know, let, let it evolve slowly. Don't go, don't be too crazy to be in a big, big hurry to, you know, be doing just, you know, having an aesthetic a cosmetic practice. There's more than enough there, right? Yeah, and, and just the skills and the, the techniques you develop doing reconstructive surgery, I think absolutely makes you a better cosmetic surgeon. Um, you know, forces you to think differently and sometimes to improvise and learn how to manage uh, wounds. And, and uh, it's, it's been invaluable to me, making me a better cosmetic surgeon. Yeah, so tell me what, like, like if you were to like paint your dream practice, like what it would be in five years, um, what would it be like? So dream practice would be, you know, still a hybrid of cosmetic and, and, and functional uh, surgery. And I, I would still want to have kind of a core group of people whose injectables I do and um, 
I'd probably want to work a little less, maybe, maybe take a day to do uh, more administrative work and a little extra family time. And I've actually carved out a little time every week to take my kids to school, which um, is my favorite day of the week um, to be able to drop them off and then show up to work a little late. Um, but I really want to just continue to excel and get better and, um, you know, enhance my results on the types of operations I perform and have a practice where, where, uh, you know, I'm known in my area to be kind of the expert in, in facial rejuvenation and rhinoplasty. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if that fully answered your question, yeah, but no, it's right? kind of like what I already have, just, uh, you know, a little more honed and focused on the things I enjoy yeah. doing. No, I, I, uh, I hear you. Um, do you do at this point, do you do any formal type of strategic planning? You remember we used to do that. I still do it. Um, do you do any of that now? Or maybe you say, look, I'm not, I don't have enough of a team yet that I can do it, but I'm just curious. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely believe in the processes you taught me as far as identifying your strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats. And, yeah. um, I don't have the kind of direct staff that works just for me where it, it, it really makes sense for me to do too much of that. Um, but, but I'm also someone who every day keeps a journal and sets, you know, monthly and yearly goals. And so I do it for myself and then try and try and pass that on to my, to my team. Um, but as far as doing things the way you did, I think that's something I'd like to get better at for sure. Well, it's, listen, it's a process, right? All of this yeah. is a process. Um, you know, what we do now is not what we did years ago. So what would you say is maybe your your 10-year goal? What would be your 10-year goal? I mean, I talked to you what the practice would be, but like, you know, personal, professional kind of goals, things that you uh, would, you know, maybe maybe it's something outside the practice. What, you know, what are the things that you say, you know, if I have more time, I do now? Yeah, it's a tough question to answer during the pandemic just because there's so many things we normally do that we're not doing right now. But, you know, I, I do want to have more time to have um, hobbies and interests outside of medicine. Um, I've really focused on, on my practice and then just being a father. My kids are still quite young. Um, so 10 years from now, you know, most of my kids will be uh, teenagers and, and or out of the house. And uh, I think my practice will be mature enough that I'll, I'll hopefully be able to bring in, um, you know, a, a partner or an associate, um, someone who I can be a mentor to. Um, so I'd like to be able to, to help encourage someone and bring them along in their career um, and hope, hope in the next five to 10 years I can start doing that. Yeah, that's a that's a, a pretty cool goal to aspire to. You know what I learned just as I'm a little further along with the kids. So our my our youngest is 17, and Kate turned 30 yesterday. So, um, but I my kids used to feel like I really didn't have a lot in the way of hobbies. Although you used to know I used to fox hunt and you know I had my farm and whatever. But 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 I, I think if you're trying to do a really good job being a good dad, there's not much left over. <laughs> I mean, I used to yeah. say to my kids. You know, what I think Riley said to me once, you know, Dad, I, I like all your friends, like, or a mom goes to lunch with her friends and whatever. I'm like, she was like, you don't really have a lot of friends. I'm like, uh, yeah, I do. They're just not. And most of my friends are my fellows and my colleagues around the country. And um, but by the time I'm done with work and you guys, there's not much left over. Um, 
right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's really true. But I actually am, I'm, uh, you probably know I'm a re- relatively newly minted pilot now. So, um, you know, I'm flying and I, I've got to, I always fly with professionals and all this other stuff is, but I, I never had the time. Um, but there's yeah, a lot, there's a lot out had, there. Yeah. One, one thing you taught me, um, during fellowship was the importance of, of taking care of yourself and, and staying physically fit. And I'd gone through some periods during practice where I'd get in better shape and work out and try and be healthy. And then, you know, you let that go for a while. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I made, made a goal to, you know, get in the best shape of my life. And, and so, you know, I, I have to get up at five o'clock in the morning now to work out because I don't want to take time away from, from my kids after right. work. Um, so yeah, you have a limited amount of time in the day and, uh, you, know, you have your patients and you got your family and then you got to spend a little time on yourself. And after that, there's not much more time for anything. No, there's not. Um, well, at, at the end of this, I want to stay on because I want to talk, just want to catch up on your family. But uh, I figured I'd give you a couple of minutes here. You and I don't get the chance to really chat or share. Is there, you know, any questions you have for me? I mean, you know, because I get this a lot, right? Former fellows are they're, they're thinking about doing this or buying a laser or buying a building. Do you have any, any things you want, anything you want to ask me? Yeah, you know, one one thing that's interested me, I, I look back at, at uh, you know, pro- surgical professional fees when I started practicing and then how those have changed over the years. And I'm kind of curious how you've set your rates for your cosmetic procedures and then what, how often you revisit those rates and, and modify them and what that process has been sure. for you. Sure. So... Yeah, and, and it's funny because you you know you put your head down do your work and three years things change. Um, there was a period of time where we really didn't move our fees at all after the recession two thousand eight, and then probably about when you were around twelve or so we moved them up again. And um, I recently just readjusted them again. But here's kind of the the strategy that that I take. I I don't want to be well. If you're able to, and this is not, well, it can happen in Beverly Hills and it can happen in your market. It's harder in our market. If you really quote brand yourself where you are the guy, and I don't want to say that I'm not the guy in my area, but, but you know, when people are, then you know, all bets are off. I mean, you know, you see, you know, some of our colleagues are getting an insane fees for things that, that, that's a different world, but but for the average community and that you're in and you're the guy to go to, everyone knows you're the guy to go to. What, what I try to do is, um, you know, our key fees, bufferplasty fees, rhinoplasty fees, um, facelift fees. We do, uh, do secret shoppers and we have some of our people who work, uh, work on it for a few days, call a bunch of different offices and try to get fees. We find out that a lot of people are not willing to give up their fees. But so then we send some secret shoppers to go get a, you know, get a facelift and whatever. And, and we do it because it's important information. You don't want to leave any money on the table, but you also don't want to, you don't want to uh, affect your conversion rate. Um, we looked at the practice here and just, a, I think we figured in something like a 5% drop in conversion rate with the consults was, could be anywhere between a quarter and a half million bucks. And if for some reason your fees are quote too high, like my partners, like, so for example, certain things like breast dog are more of a commodity. You know, people are are checking fees more, but facelift a little less. So, but, so what we, what I strive for is being five to 10% uh, 
higher than, you know, everybody else in the area. There are those people that if you're, for example, you're less expensive, they're going to think you're not as good, even though you may be as good or better. And so we do it about every three years and we do it on really the key things. Um, And then what I do in my mind is I use a number that I feel I need to generate per hour in the operating room. Um, And I do that because say something like a lip lift comes along, all of a sudden, you know, you're not doing them and you start doing them again. You know, I say, how long does this take and how much risk is there? You know, for example, if you're going to do a Uri flap, you know what they are, right, Steve? You remember that? You know, you're going to do a Uri flap and you've never done one before. You're not going to do that for, you know, you got to make sure you're getting paid well on it because it's, it's a risky procedure. You know, you kill that flap, you're, you're done. So uh, we do secret shot. I say about every three years, you should check them again. But I've been surprised that uh, there have been periods of time, five, six, seven years where our, we've kept our fees kind of flat. And I say that because just recently I pushed my facelift fees up a couple thousand bucks more. But up until then, I would say we were probably, I'd see patients that came in in 2015 and they were quoted the same thing that I, you know, charge now. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, you know, I, I don't want to be the, I certainly don't want to be viewed as a bargain. You never win on that. And if you're doing a really good job, taking good care of your patients, you're not likely to just, you know, dollar shop. And if they are, they're not, they're not the ones, you know, you want anyway. But I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And one other question I had was, um, how you use other um, other people in your office to take care of your patients after surgery. So at what point are you having nurses and medical assistants and others doing most of the suture removals and, and post-op care versus you being in the room every time they come in? Okay, so um, this, this evolves over time, right? Uh, it's uh, from day one. Right now... Uh, I mean, I, in the very, very, very beginning and for years, uh, I'll tell you, DeFata was 2008. It was probably 2005 or so. So I was in practice almost 15 years. I was still taking out some of my own sutures. Um, I haven't in, in years. And, um, you know, our nurses take out all the sutures. I don't even think, do you take out many sutures, Rob? Rob's, in, yeah, our fellow, Rob's our current fellow here. He just came in the room, but he, you know, he doesn't even take out the sutures. Now we have, um, I, we just feel it's better off that his time is doing other things. If they can't get a suture out of an eyelid or something, they'll call him. But, um, I, you know, I think that the busier you get and, um, the easier it is and the more, more patients accept that. I used to feel it's like even Botox. I haven't injected Botox in years. And I used to feel that, you know, patients wanted me. Um, and they wanted me for the suture removal, but there's a, there's no question that you can, I, for example, I don't even remember, did you used to come in? I, I mean, I take my fellows into all of my consults now. I yeah. probably didn't do that back then, or I took them and took you into some of them, but some, yeah. some, but I mean, I don't know. I think, um, it's something that evolves over time, but I don't, I, I think to it's, it's good to aspire to kind of what I have now is that, you know, you don't take out any of the sutures. In fact, I typically don't see the patients. I may see them the first day after they got the dressings off, but then I see them again in a week and then I don't see them for four, you know, four or five weeks. Um, and the nurses take care of them. Um, so 
Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. Same thing with the splint removal, rhinoplasty splint removal. Or as of recent, I've tried to because you know people want to see a video of you taking off the splint. So they've had a couple of them recently, but by and large, uh, the nurses do that. And I think you know, I think if we get if you've got the right people, you know, you want them to form a bond with your team, not just you, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you always taught me that if someone can do something, what, 80% as well as you, then your time's better spent doing something else. And yeah. I think that that general principle applies to these things we're talking about. Yeah, Rob, who's sitting here, he's sitting here next to me snickering because I just probably told him that about last week or something. <laughs> I, still, I say the same stuff over and over, Rob. So uh, anyway, so let me do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign off with this, and then you, I want to just keep you on the phone here just to chat with you for a second. So. All right. So listen, folks, uh, I hope, first of all, thank you so much for listening. Um, shoot us some emails. If you have any questions, burning questions, uh, either to Dr. Danes or myself, um, but, uh, and check out our website at dredwinwilliams.com. I hope you found this useful. I know these are a lot of questions that people are struggling with in the beginning and it's, it's not fun, but as you heard from, uh, uh Dr. Steve Danes here in a very, very competitive market, um, you know, just put your head down, keep working, do the right thing. I think that's the central message, right? 100%. All right. All right. Well, listen, we're going to be signing off for now, and uh, we'll see you uh, next month. And uh, the topic will be announced at that time. <laughs>